What is a smart city? Our civilization has reached a point where we can no longer think bigger. We now have to think smarter. All around the world, there are transformative cities doing incredible things, and it's time to sit up and listen. It's time to make a difference for ourselves and for our planet. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Smart City Diaries, the show where I frequently will have to be told the same thing multiple times before I understand it. I'm joined by my lovely co-host and mother, Debbie Acosta. Mom, it was lovely, who I actually just got to see last week for the first time in many, many, many months, thanks to our dear friend COVID, got all vaccinated and went up to meet her up in uh, Ojai. It was so lovely seeing you again. Uh, We actually had a wonderful family reunion with my partner, but down in Ojai as well. So uh, we have an RV that we took out for the first time on a long trip, and we were able to go down the Central Valley, um, all the passing through Paso Robles, the wine country. I cannot believe how many vineyards are being planted now when there's so much drought going I mean, on. But hey, that's, that's been a happening in Paso story. for a while. Not drought related, but just it's really it's, Santa Barbara, that whole region is definitely burgeoned into a Napa South. Is just every hill, every little nook and cranny. It's unbelievable. So that was interesting. But what was kind of disturbing to me was how obvious it was the um, impacts of, of global warming. And whether it was global warming or it's just drought in California, um, the La- Lake Casitas. Yeah, Lake Casitas, while we were at, the, the water line must have been dropped 50 feet. And it clearly hasn't been up for many, many years now. So that part was a little bit disturbing. It was also the changes in temperatures. I'm not sure if that's normal, but wow, 100 degrees to 50 degrees in Paso Robles. It was, and just a few hundred miles apart. It was really an interest. It, that part was very interesting. What I loved though, was the ability to get out and meet people that I'm not normally that I don't normally meet. So people who travel in trailers and in RVs are a whole different crowd. I, I would have to say many of them are retired. Hey, wow, they're my age. <laughs> older folks, um, yeah. And many of them, sh- they're older folks. And what was really wonderful about it, the first night that we were there uh, in Paso Robles, some uh, men came up to us, drove up to us on bicycles, and they started welcoming us to the RV uh, <laughs> experience and that we're going to love this whole experience. And and w- just wait, we're just going to get an itch to get an even bigger trailer. We, By the way, we have a 17-foot trailer. Did you have a um, sign-up sign that said we're new here or something? How did they know to come give you the welcome committee? <laughs> I, 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 th- I think that they saw the small trailer and said, isn't that cute? Just wait oh, till it trail- blows up. Oh, they trailer shamed you. That's not cool. That's not nice. <laughs> but it was fun. They they really they really did say there was you're going to love this. You know, welcome to the community. We all know each other. And and Gary and I were looking at each other, going, oh, I don't know if I'm quite ready for all of this. <laughs> but but it was a very very warm and friendly experience. And uh, I hope that if this works out. The idea is we can actually take this show on the road. I'd love to go to cities across America and, and talk to people in cities, yeah, in cities and in rural areas, um, finding out what their challenges are with uh, technology in cities and, and just not only the challenges, but find the things that are going right for people. But Anna, the thing that really struck me most when I traveled down the valley is how difficult it was to get a solid internet yeah. connection. 
So the soon as you get out of an urban area, I mean, I, I actually had a really good Netgear router. Um, that's not a plug for Netgear, but it was a really, they're it's not a really paying good us, one. But if they'd um, like to. And, no, they're not paying us. But I, my son recommended it to me. He said, Mom, do this. I've got a, you know, I've got a T-Mobile chip in it. It's not a plug for T-Mobile either. No one is were, paying us. Not a plug for T-Mobile. That's just what I, that's just what I use. But I figured it was, that was the right combination. And uh, I was lucky in most places to get three megabits per second up download and upload was less than one I'm megabit per second. I'm guessing that's bad. So okay. that's really bad. You can't, definitely can't do video on that. You can't stream video on that. Um, and you, how are you going to go to or work school. on that? How do you have a job digitally or school digitally when you have that kind of a poor connection? So that reminds me, President Biden in his new infrastructure plan is sequestered or he's proposing a hundred billion dollars to improve the internet connections across America. To our audience, please pay attention to this. This can impact your own city um, and your own communities, or it will not impact if there's nobody in your community who is advocating that you get it. So just be aware that um, it's coming um, and and it's just so badly needed. I, I look forward to making trips within the next two or three years when I have a really great connection that gives me at least 50 megabits per second anywhere I uh, uh, download, anywhere I go. And then I'm going to be a fancy very over person. here. So anyway, it was a great trip. Really enjoyed it. Um, and I hope to do it again soon. And especially if it means that I can go and visit you yeah, sometime be nice. soon again. That'd be nice. That'd be nice. <laughs> Today on Smart City Diaries, we are going to be talking about the one and only blockchain. Everybody is talking about it. Very few people seem to actually know what it is. And we're going to dive a little bit farther into that. But before we do that, I found some stuff on the internet that I want to talk about. We're going to do some news. As we all know, there is a lot of chatter about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin going on over the past few weeks, months. I Time is fake at this point. I have no idea how long it's been, but it's current. And so going along with that, there have been a few stories popping up like this. This one comes from Business Insider. Like many of my fellow humans, I have an iPhone, and it has a feature that will wipe your phone if you input your password wrong too many times. Now, eventually, evidently, there's a guy who was keeping all of his Bitcoin, and if anyone listen, if I'm using any of these terms incorrectly, I apologize. Like many of you, I don't know what any of it means. But he was storing his Bitcoin in his wallet on his computer. And he was using an iron key device, which works the same way. At any rate, this guy, German programmer Stefan Thomas, accidentally became the Internet's main character for a minute when he lost his password to this computer, rendering his $220 million Bitcoin stash inaccessible. Which apparently no. roughly $140 billion <laughs> in Bitcoin is currently lost in a similar way. And this is not just this one guy. This $140 billion in Bitcoin globally is currently lost the same way just because of forgotten passwords and locked accounts. So the moral of this story is write it down. Your password? <laughs> write it down or get a password account. Holy smokes, that much money is running around in the universe, in the in the cloud yeah. someplace. It's the universal problem with, with uh, passcodes, right? Could we not invent some other way to become more secure? Because it's this is kind of crazy. It's just write down your damn password. Like there's... 
just write down your physically, damn like in yeah. person, someplace that you can physically find it. Because apparently, just going tech only, it has some it has some drawbacks. Um, so this next story I've got, yeah, this next story I've got is from Patch.com. A little bit less stri- strictly tech, a little more of the culture side here. They reported that fe- fearing plunging rents, and this is a quote. Fearing plunging rents, New York City landlords have been keeping apartments off the market intentionally because they were not willing to rent them out at market rate. I have to make that specific. So basically, they're apartment hoarding. Surely this isn't a common occurrence because nobody would be that ghoulish during a pandemic and certainly not in mass. Now, granted, I don't have the numbers here. I don't know how many landlords were doing this in terms of like physically how many individuals were responsible. With the data that is available is on how many apartments this was happening to, not the individuals that control those apartments. So this could be like three like apartment management companies just being terrible, or it could be hundreds of landlords. But either way, it is being reported that more than 50% of the apartments in New York's in, in Man- sorry, in Manhattan specifically, were being kept off of the market. So they're unoccupied and they were just being kept off of the market because landlords didn't want to rent them out at the current going rate. Meaning the mar- market rate yes. was down over where they thought it And this data is from Urban Digs. This legal but shitty practice is called warehousing, or as I like to call it, capitalism's finest. And it's a sign that landlords are hoping that it'll be back to price gouging as usual in the near future. One response comes from Aliyah Mohammed at Open Igloo, which is a new app that allows tenants to review and rate both apartments and landlords. That app is soon going to start collecting comments from renters on the number of empty apartments in their buildings. It's interesting because I live in an apartment building where some of the units were definitely, our rents didn't come down and the units were empty for a very long time. And I have some questions about what was going on here. You mentioned that. Yeah, you mentioned that you thought it was, I remember that taking a look at the empty or just realizing the empty apartments and and you were thinking, well, they just left Los Angeles for whatever reason. They can't fill it up back enough. Fast enough. Sounds to me like there's maybe a whole nother Especially story when you go online it. and you realize that all the other rents in the neighborhood have fallen and the ones in your building are still being advertised for the same price that they would have been before the pandemic. And it's... So they're not trying to sell it. Well, when they, they do that, they're basically saying we're not trying to rent the house. Well, they basically, the they're prioritizing once again wow. profits over people because they're saying, I want to be able to charge what I was charging before. And that's not even good capitalism. Good capitalism says... What the market demands is what the supply is supposed to meet. Landlords hoarding the resource, which is what this is, or warehousing the re- resource, is evil. Like, and you you follow that chain all the way down the line. There's not enough housing in America. Right. There's more people. We haven't kept well, up with the homeless building crisis the housing is getting like the, worse by the day. And the problem isn't that homeless people mm-hmm. exist. The problem is that homeless people have nowhere to no. go. Right. There's no housing because when you keep those house, those that those apartments off the market, those people have right. to go someplace and they kick out the lower rung and then lower economic uh, folks then themselves yeah. have to find some other ac- acceptable right. form of housing. And it ends and up then being Caitlyn the Jenner gets upset because she has to look at you while she's from in her airport hangar. Anyway, moving right along a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> ostensibly to celebrate Saturday night. Um, Saturday Night Live's baffling announcement that they're going to be have Elon Musk on as a host. 
I heard about that. What is that about? (laughs) Mistakes were made. Elon Musk is going to host an upcoming episode of the show. And so Richard Marks tweeted the following. He said, I would, and I quote, I would rather watch a fly crawl up a drape or the worst episode of the worst TV show in history 88 times in a row than watch Elon Musk do anything ever. And the only commentary I have to add to that is we are agreed. And that was the news. Moving on to our main story tonight, we are going to talk about blockchain. And that is the extent of how much I can say about blockchain. So, Mom, what is blockchain? Blockchain. Oh, so much more than cryptocurrency. Y'all have been hearing about millions of dollars of NFT sales, right? So secure sharing of medical data, NFT marketplaces, music royalties tracking, cross-border payments. Oh, my God. FinTech, right? Real-time Internet of Things operating systems, personal identity security, anti-money laundering tracking, supply chain and logistics monitoring, one of my favorites. So blockchain is a whole lot more than just um, cryptocurrency. It's also a lot more than just a big database in the sky. Even for those of us who are in the industry, blockchain trying to explain it to somebody because we think we know it, we end up, you know, Toss, we, we end up just tur- turning over our own lips just trying to figure this out and try to explain it to somebody who, who doesn't understand it. But I'm going to give you my best shot at what I understand blockchain to be. You can think of blockchain as this gigantic database in the cloud. If, if you can picture blockchain, it, it's it's data that's all connected to each other in some way. I actually found a really interesting, uh, really great allegory for what blockchain is. It's a clever metaphor for blockchain from William, and I apologize if I'm butchering your last name, William, Mugayar, the author of the business blockchain. He thinks blockchain is like Google Docs. So if you think about it, and you know, for many years on Microsoft Word, you'd, you'd You'd create a document and then to get edit it, you'd send it to somebody else and they would send in their edits and then they would save it and then they would send to you the edited document and then you'd have to edit out the things you didn't like. And 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 it wasn't a collab it wasn't really didn't feel like a very collaborative effort. Well, when Google Docs fixed that by allowing all of us to collaborate on a document at the same time. So blockchain is kind of like that. It means that everybody can have their fingers in the pie at the same time and everyone can see what everyone else is doing. If you were, for example, making a rocket ship and this why I'm picking this example will become <laughs> apparent to you in a few minutes. Let's say you're pick, you're going to make sure. a rocket ship, but you don't need to make all of the parts yourself. You just want to put all of the parts together and create this rocket ship. So you've got to source the materials elsewhere. But not only do you need to buy all the individual widgets that you need to make that rocket, you also want to make sure that all these things were sourced or made sustainably, that they weren't made in a way that that adds unnecessary amounts of carbon into the air and that the, the products, that, that the materials that are using are sustainable and recyclable. So if those kinds of things are interesting to you, then you want to be to ensure that you actually get all of those those requirements met. Blockchain enables someone to be able to go to all elements of the of the um, of the product and be able to tell where it was sourced, where it was made, where it was machined, the certifications on those machines. And it's a way of 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 validating that that information is actually true. 
So it's not just about cryptocurrency. And that's what most of our listeners are going to be. They're going to think of blockchain and they're going to think of cryptocurrency. And they're going to think of all the different kinds of cryptocurrencies that maybe some of them are invested in. But they still don't really understand what it is. So today we're going to talk about that with uh, Jeremy Goodwin, the CEO and uh, founder of SyncFab, um, who I first met in 2014 when he pitched this crazy idea about building a digital supply chain. Well, today, Jeremy is founder and CEO of SyncFab, a California company that links buyers in aeronautics, aerospace, auto and medical industries to the U.S. factories that are capable of supplying the needed precision parts, both on time and within budget. And how does SyncFab meet the cybersecurity needs of their digital supply chain? I'll give you one guess. It's called blockchain. So everything useful and accurate I've ever learned about blockchain, I've learned from Jeremy Goodwin, our guest today on Smart City Diaries. Jeremy, couldn't be a more timely conversation, so welcome to the show. I remember at 10 years old, I figured like I was fearless. The world was in front of me. Anything was possible. When you were 10 years old, what were you thinking of doing with your life? Were you thinking at all? Or what were you doing? <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite a hearkening aback um, and unexpected. <laughs> I, I was just thinking of... I mean, because the, the, the introduction that you gave me, I was, uh, I mean, quite flattered. But if I think back to when, you know, I was that young, when I was 10 years old, what was I thinking about? What was I doing? I mean, I, I, I believe at that time I was very conscientious and aware of my surroundings and my environment. I was becoming increasingly aware of my surroundings and my environment at the time and, and how I could adapt to it. I know nowadays I'm just blown away by how the youth are affected by technology and they're able to think about, Oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a, I want to be a, a, an astronaut. You know, at that time I was thinking more about, um, you know, just uh, get, getting in, 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 in a more conducive uh, environment. And when I was 10, I was plotting how to become a boy band member. So that's, that's <laughs> what I was up to back in what, 2001. That's right. what I want. That's what I was all about. <laughs> Exactly. But I think it sounds to me like, you know, being able to 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 look around your environment and start connecting the dots. It sounds to me like you started to do that kind of at a young age. I had had some some time actually in in Asia as a as a youngster in modern China or what was then modern China, which is much, much different than it is now because time moves so quickly and progress moves so quickly um, but I got to witness, you know, firsthand that that massive transformation, the industrial transformation that took place over there. And, all, and also the effect, you know, that it had on the United States at the same time. Um, and the there there was in, we are pursuing, you know, a growing pie for the globe and for our country and, and for people and for humanity. But at the same time, it's not a perfect model. So there's there's expansion, there's contraction. And so I, I got to see, you know, how that worked. But what is it about that experience that caused you to say, hey, manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, um, 
bringing that back to America will actually create jobs and actually bring manufacturing and good paying jobs back to America and to our cities. How did that evolve into SyncFab, into the into your concept of, of focusing on manufacturing through digital supply chains? When you look into um, really what drives um, the economic multiplier in a market, in an economy, it's, it's, it's quite obvious, it's quite straightforward that manufacturing is a very powerful force in the economy with a jobs multiplier that dwarfs any other sector. So we, the American economy during the 80s and 90s and early 2000s quickly morphed towards a services-oriented economy, which they were convinced, the economists and the, um, the policy wonks were convincing Americans that this was much better for us and for our future because it's, um, you know, cleaner, services oriented. And um, that meant that we were moving up the food chain. We're a more advanced economy. We didn't need to make stuff anymore. But what they didn't uh, factor into the conversation, what they overlooked was that we were losing the jobs multiplier at the same time in uh, Asia, where they have a more traditional view. They were, of course, happy to take these jobs, to take these business opportunities I saw the transformation that took place both not just conceptually, but but empirically and, and on the ground. And it just completely transformed their economy and the welfare and the well-being of, you know, a billion people. And, um, you know, at the same time, what happened when 300 million Americans were asked to give up or at the time, I think it was about 25 percent of American economy was manufacturing. Now it's about 12 percent. So, you know, about 20, 15 percent of Americans were asked to give up their manufacturing jobs and then all of a sudden just retrain themselves and find new jobs in, in services or, or go to vocational school or, or whatever. So what has happened here in America by our manufacturing jobs going away, it left a it left a wide gap. Um, just I, I just because I'm very big about being picky with language, I just, the jobs didn't go away. They were sent away. I just think we have to, I want to be intentional about saying that they were this is <laughs> yay capitalism. But I won't go. I won't get too high on that soapbox this particular. But I'm just saying they were not they didn't go away. They were sent someplace by someone who wanted to make more money than they were making doing it here. Carry on. Okay. I, I don't have any, I have no uh, just, just no saying. objections to that statement at this point. The good news is, is they're starting to come back, but that is not why we're here today. Well, no, actually that not. is kind of why oh. we're here today, but Jeremy, <laughs> we're here to talk about blockchain today because that's an integral part of the, of the supply chain platform that SyncFab has built. I know that you know blockchain inside and out because you work with it every day. And I know that our listeners are, because of the, the sudden rise of NFTs and cryptocurrencies, people just want to understand what blockchain is. And I know Anna here has been definitely bugging me to go, I don't understand it, but everybody's talking about it. Yes, please. Let's have Jeremy on to help explain it to us. So how is blockchain related to data? And describe blockchain for the layperson. Me. Describe it for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the, the amazing thing is, I mean, it's 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 constantly a learning a learning process too. So every time I get to to speak about it, because it's it's an evolving uh, industry as well. I mean, blockchain really began as the foundational technology for uh, the the payment system that most are familiar with now, um, Bitcoin. 
but it's 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 basically when you deconstruct the technology and recondition it and reapply it for new applications in different different industries. It's core underlying uh, technology. It's it's distributed ledger technology, and it it focuses on data. So it records data in the form of economic transactions, such that they cannot be manipulated. So it's 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 uh, potentially a substitute for for databases, which are more static forms of, of data storage that are less secure and can be manipulated, which, well, a lot of enterprise likes, right? Because they like to manipulate data. Um, whereas blockchain is a more secure form for that data. Why is blockchain secure in a way that these databases aren't? And this is honest, I'll be real, with all the people, and this includes people who get into NFTs and who are dabbling crypto and all that, this is the part where they have never, I've never gotten an explanation that, other than it basically starts to sound almost religious because you get people sort of saying, well, it's about faith and that where it's just like, it just is, it's secure. And I feel like that probably is because they don't fully know why it's so secure. So I guess all I'm asking is why, why is blockchain so impenetrable? So for every transaction that's recorded on the blockchain, it it must be verified first. And it's impossible for a single unit to pose a threat to that data data network, a node or a unit that begins to act abnormally can easily be identified and expunged from the network. But because the network is distributed, it makes it almost impossible for a single party or a single user to generate enough computational power to alter the validation criteria. Think of it as like a, 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 a database is a centralized uh, computer network that whose data whose records can be changed by a single person with the password. But a blockchain is a distributed or almost they call it a virtual machine. It's essentially a chain of records where you cannot create or alter a record without altering all the records before that. And the components of that distributed virtual machine are different um, operators and validators of that data. And you need to go back and be able to have them alter that data in order to alter a particular record, which is practically impossible unless it's true. Does that make sense? Wow. So it's almost like a series of, I I think of it kind of as a set set of dominoes only going backwards. If you try to, if you try to lift something out of the middle, it's going to become fairly obvious when the whole thing breaks that, down. Right, because you're going to ha- it doesn't it's not going to make sense on the back end. It's definitely going to make not make sense with the data on the back end, right? Cuz now all of a sudden it doesn't fit anymore. That's huh. why they talk about these um, you know, 51% attacks. The only way to manipulate the records recorded on a blockchain is to basically take control of 51% of the network, but because it's a distributed virtual machine, that means actually literally physically and uh, physically taking control of 51% of the network, which is why diversification, decentralization, and scale of that network is, um, is, is tantamount to its level of security. So describe that because, of course, we have computing. We've always thought of it as, you know, one big server in the sky kind of thing. But you're talking about individual machines, Right. That's what I'm hearing you say, that this this information is distributed and secured on various machines. What does that mean? Computers, cell phones, 
mainframes. They're even making smart appliances now that some people are are, are, are engineering to be able to record and, and, and store data. I haven't heard instances of it yet for the mainstream blockchains that most people are, are using, but um, a lot of these new uh, blockchain protocol projects that are popping up, you know, are talking about being able to piggyback off of, um, you know, available memory on, um, you know, different home smart appliances, for example. So machines, there's basically wow. any, any anything with computing power. And, and so there's definitely in the future, if not now, but there probably is, there's connections between artificial intelligence and blockchain? So the way I simplify this, Deborah, is um, mm-hmm. the industrial revolution or the revolution of, of many industries is, is based on data. It's all about the data. So think in, right. in manufacturing, for example, we have the physical part, but then mm-hmm. we also have the data that was used to make that part. So in order to optimize and improve and, and make more sustainable and more environmentally friendly and speed up and um, cost optimize and better engineer in the future, it's all about data. And there's a lot of data that goes into engineering that the original form of that part material that was used to make that part, who made mm-hmm. that part, how it was certified from a quality standpoint, how it was certified from a government compliance standpoint, if you're in defense and space and aerospace, a lot of data. And um, so the building blocks of the industrial revolution or industry 4.0 that they call it, or what I call ABC, artificial intelligence, blockchain, and connectivity, so that right. you can get to the data. The data is where the revolution is taking place. The connectivity gets the last mile access to the data through IIoT. The blockchain is the secure intermediary plumbing that transmits the data, transmits formats, and then accelerates the matching of the data with uh, smart contracts. And then the AI at the very end, after you've gotten access to the data, You've securely transmitted and formatted the data. Then you can begin to uh, optimize the matching of it. So these different technologies, they all glom onto each other and complement each other to achieve that revolution. You know, you talked about the industrial revolution in China, how a lot of uh, the manufacturing jobs in, in, in America were taken to China, to Vietnam, to other countries in Asia, leaving a dearth of um, people behind who didn't ha- don't have skills to go to to do anything else. I mean, this is what they did. They worked in car factories. They worked in any one of a number of the the different things that were made in in America. And we which really blue collar ha- or no is specialized labor is specialized labor. Exactly. It's so, unfairly stigmatized. And yeah. so when so when uh, cities like Detroit and the factories, the car factories all close, you can go there now and you can see whole areas of the city where empty factory after empty factory is sitting shuttered. Well, now you and I are both really thrilled because we've been watching over the last few uh, months that we're seeing it back. So recently, Forbes magazine recently led with an article entitled Seven Reasons Why U.S manufacturing is on the rise. And the underlying premise is a new wave of U.S.-based automated manufacturing ventures could provide high-paying jobs to millions without the need for education. Really what's driving it is this accelerating innovation in um, 
as a, as a function of the new technologies, accelerating innovation in automotive, for example, electric vehicles, accelerating innovation in space exploration, um, accelerating innovation in aerospace that's requiring faster, more iterative, shorter production cycles of new innovations in planes, trains, automobiles, and rockets that are requiring them to look more closer to home to get faster turnarounds, newly engineered, higher quality parts. So we're seeing a return to quality. And what we're seeing more and more is that they care more about timing than they do about cost. And because of that, they're no longer looking to the, the farthest out of sight, lowest cost source to get these parts where there's also quality issues, mind you. So it's, I see it more as a function of the supply chain shocks, increased government spending, accelerating innovation, which requires more responsive local supply chains, return to quality, and also national security. We've now become more aware previously where we were content to just send these jobs offshore that it creates real national security issues for us with respect to things like rare earth minerals and microchips. So national security is, is another reason. But that being said, all these different manufacturing ventures are definitely creating more higher paying jobs for Americans is, and, and they require more skill than they did before. That brings me to ThinkFab. I mean, ThinkFab, uh, you know, has everything to do with increasing the ability of America to to return to manufacturing. What does ThinkFab do and what does it have to do with building good paying job, manufacturing jobs in America? And how does blockchain make this goal happen? When ThinkFab was founded, it was with the explicit mission of, of bringing greater attention and an organization to the, the overlooked the then overlooked local American supplier resources with the aim of encouraging more U.S. OEM manufacturers to utilize them and reshore as opposed to offshoring. OEM. OEM. Oh, yeah. OEM. Original equipment manufacturer. Sorry. Okay. Okay. We quickly ran into resistance at the time. A lot of naysayers every step of the way from Silicon Valley all the way to Detroit saying that, you know, it, it, we can't, we cannot return manufacturing to, to this country. They said that over and over and over and over and over and over again, just as recently as two or three years ago. Subtext, we don't want to. That's the subtext. <laughs> well, because to me, we can't. When, when a corporation say we can't, generally it means we don't want to. Right. Suffice to say, we, we persevered nevertheless, and we incrementally built up this this thriving ecosystem of, of U.S. And, and now also um, European and Swiss suppliers too, but beginning in San Leandro and now spanning the 50 United States, reaching approximately about 10% of U.S. suppliers, according to the U.S. economic census and growing. Using blockchain, we're better able to incentivize these suppliers to, to join and rejoin and engage in acting, active bidding. And it results in, in more jobs fulfilled uh, domestically and, and locally, as opposed to being sent somewhere far away um, for the promise of delivery at pennies on the dollar. But this, this perception of manufacturing is dirty, dark, and dangerous. It's totally outdated. It characterized an earlier, more archaic method of manufacturing, which is more labor-intensive and manual without computer facilitation, less advanced raw material processing and delivery methods. And current manufacturing practices utilize more evolved processing technologies with cleaner, 
more complete modes of raw material delivery and cutting methods with efficient scrap capture and return in clean room environments. As many of the finished goods carry cleaner, more stringent standards than bygone eras and production lines are brighter, cleaner, more efficient than they've ever been. And if anything, are coming to resemble more well-lit hospital surgery operating rooms, if anything. Well, that's been my impression. When I go into these big manufacturers uh, in, in San Leandro, it's it, that's what it feels like. Some of the smaller machine shops, a little bit different, but everything still, it's not not dirty, dark, and dangerous. There's a certain pride that comes with the skill sets that these people have. I see more women entering into those uh, industries, which is really great because, again, well-paying jobs for the most part. Here in America, they, there was a uh, in California, there was a report done not too long ago that indicated that the average wage earner, uh, and this was probably five years ago, in manufacturing in the in the Bay Area pulled in $75,000 a year plus medical benefits and full suite of benefits. That's almost enough to afford living in the Bay Area, almost. So what I really want to drive home here to our audiences is why should your work matter, Jeremy, to younger generations, especially younger generations struggling with underemployment and debt. I mean, would you advise younger generations to broaden their thinking when considering job options and whether or not to pursue a college degree or even what kind of degree? Absolutely. Because I mean, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's all, it's all about opportunity, opportunities to explore your vocational interests, explore, you know, what, what is your, what is meaning of life to you? What is the purpose of in your life, but also having the, the resources available to do that. And, the opportunity in manufacturing is precisely that with this generational shift, with having been a neglected industry for three decades. I mean, you have the likes of Elon Musk coming out and saying, you know, I don't care what education you have. Just come and work for me. Help me build rockets because they need people right now. They need people to come in and, and learn the trade. And, and one of the most valuable opportunities is to have on the job training opportunities available it's showing no signs of slowing down. If anything, they're projecting a boom. Previously, they were saying it's going to reach 1980s level. Now they're saying it's going to go all the way back to 1950s level. And whoa, work. Yeah, that's that's what they're they're projecting at the moment. I was, I was, I was blown away. And and that okay. So that's huge job opportunities then for a younger generation. The term smart city is bandied about a lot. Um, so when I was a CIO, when, if you asked me what a smart city was, I said, well, it's really about the, the connection of software to hardware to generate data to, that provides information that allows better decision making. So it was just as, you know, it was just as trite as that. And I feel like that was seems a, straightforward enough, seems straightforward enough, right? It has become much more complicated, and, and the idea of what a smart city is, I think, is changing. So I'd like to ask you, what do you think a smart city is? The impression of a smart city is, is a connected city. It's a city that gets access to the data available to it um, with respect to its resources um, and its people um, to better organize and, and more efficiently uh, deliver on on city services um, and to better plan and implement city budgets. But I think that alone isn't what makes it a smart city. As long as it's able to 
not only gather the data, but also use, use it effectively to improve the well-being of its residents, that's what makes it smart. Yeah, it's about the residents. It's about the people. And access. I like that. Yeah, and perfect. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for sharing with us your incredible expertise on blockchain. Um, and That's the course, first step. <laughs> my, my passion about connecting blockchain with manufacturing, because I think manufacturing is definitely, not think, the data shows it's definitely on the rise. And it's a huge opportunity for younger generations to, to be able to get their hands on things and to be able to make things again. Yes, software is always going to be involved, and but hardware, the, the actual effect of making and touching things that you can make and that go out in the world is actually something that um, is very profound for people. And I'm looking forward to having that be seen as an opportunity by young people again to get into manufacturing. Well, I do have to say that I'm a little surprised that I didn't have to ask for the blockchain explanation multiple times. I was actually kind of stunned just because his explanation made sense to me on the first try, which is not, not, it has not been the experience that I've had trying to talk to anyone else about it. So that was interesting. I've been dancing around the periphery of everyone else's knowledge about blockchain for a long time. Again, in my role as official interpreter, um, but I, I got it better this time about the understanding that blockchain works because there are numerous places where this the, this information resides, different places, right? right? Different computers, different servers, and that if you change one element, it's, it's got to necessarily interrupt the data in everybody else, right. wherever that data it lies. It will cause right? inconsistencies so it's, it's or it will da- cause, basically, some, it'll be obvious something is wrong. And to me, I think something one of the biggest wrong. sort of disruptions that I, and I, I'm not using disruption in the smart city buzzword sense. I'm using it by just definition sense, something that disrupts something. I think the disruption or the disconnect between sort of the pro-blockchain, pro-crypto community and everybody else, I think one of the reasons it's become so polarizing is because there's this lack of what what is I, what I think is really a lack of understanding, a lack of ability to explain comes across as an unwillingness to explain, which sows mistrust. Because then what we sort of have left to look and you have if you can you can have people telling you this is completely safe and impenetrable and it can't be manipulated. But if you can't tell me why, then it sort of starts to sound like Titanic being unsinkable with the bulkheads. It's like, okay, cool, says you, I'm just supposed to believe you. So I appreciated that we were given, and I'm not, ask me next week (laughs) if I can explain it to you then, and we'll see if I retained it. But in this moment, I'm just like, okay, I feel like I was given an explanation that at least in my own head, like I was given a real answer. And I just appreciated that because more transparency like that from the tech community instead of condescension, which is what you usually get when you ask questions like this. um, I really appreciated that. And I would like to see more of that on this podcast. But it's important for us to question and not necessarily take Right. Everybody's word for it. Oh, it's right? hard in the age of we Twitter. It's really it, hard in the age of Twitter. The truth 
does matter. For those of you who are especially those of the younger side of the spectrum, there are some serious concerns regarding blockchain and energy usage. And yes, we will be talking about it. No, we will not be talking about it today because y'all know damn well you don't want to listen to us talk that long. So just <laughs> but we will. But I just want to just want anyone listening it. to know. No, we're not going to gloss over that. Yes, it's crucial to talk about. And yes, I'm aware there's some irony talking about green supply chains when we're talking about utilizing blockchain, which there are concerns about how green it really is. Like we get we get that. We get it. That's all. That's all I'm trying to say. So it's very exciting technology. And I'm really glad we had a chance to talk to Jeremy about it today. And folks, that concludes this week's episode of Smart City Diaries. Next time, we are going to be talking about more smart topics. I'm going to be very mysterious and not tell you which one for reasons that definitely have nothing to do with us not being sure. Don't forget to check out our Patreon, our YouTube. We are doing this because we think it's an important thing to do, and we're hoping that you agree. All right, folks, thanks for so much for joining us. Check out that Patreon, smash that like and subscribe, and we will see you next time. Signing out.